0: Okay this lecture will cover neoplasm. Let's start by taking a look at some of the new cancer cases that are projected for the year of 2017. If you take a look at this particular image it has been separated by males versus females because there is a difference in the estimated new cancer cases mainly because of gender. For example, the most predominant new diagnoses in males will be prostate cancer. The most predominant new diagnoses in women will be breast cancer. After that, they're actually relatively similar until you get to the fourth one on the list for women, which is uterine cancer. And then thyroid, skin cancer, and various blood cancers, um, lymphoma, leukemia. Versus for men, after colon cancer, it's urinary cancer, skin cancer, kidney, and then lymphoma and leukemia, and then much smaller percentages after that. So I invite you to recall the terminology from the very first lecture where we had to make a distinction between incidence and Prevalence, this is incidence. So this is the number of new cases in the United States projected for 2017. Versus prevalence would be anyone who was still living in addition to those who are currently or recently diagnosed in that year. But that would give us an an indication of the mortality rates. So let's look at that by itself the estimated cancer deaths in the United States in 2017, again, separated by males and females, actually kind of flip-flops some of those first few on the previous slide. Here, regardless of whether you're male or female, the biggest killer in terms of cancer deaths is actually lung cancer, Um, then followed by, for women, breast cancer, or for males, colon cancer, followed by prostate but you can see that the number drops pretty drastically. Lung cancer by far, it's actually the only double digit um, type of cancer that's listed here. When you get to the bottom and it says all other sites, that's all other sites besides these combined into this larger number. So all of those have to be less than 3% individually and then they're lumped together as all other sites. So you can see here that even though prostate and breast cancer may be the most highly diagnosed in males versus females respectively, lung cancer is actually the cancer that is the largest killer of both males and females. So let's take a look at some terminology in order to be able to speak with the same language and understand things when we hear information or read about it. So. There are some terms that overlap a little bit and some that are are distinct from each other. Let's start with just the term neoplasm and tumor. So neoplasm just means new growth. Now we tend to just refer to that more commonly in the public as a tumor. But neither of those terms really distinguish the type of new growth. So in order to understand what's truly going on from a clinical sense, you would use the words benign, or malignant to describe the new growth or tumor. And then to go along with that, malignancy is usually called cancer. So you can't have new growth that um, does not have a lot of harm associated with it. Then we would further describe that new growth or tumor based on the types of cells or tissue of origin um, that is present in that new growth or tumor. So here you usually have some sort of root word, usually from a Latin term, that's going to give you an idea of the cell of origin or tissue of origin. And there's a graphic here that kind of describes that a little bit. So usually here you've got some sort of, and this here they're calling it a prefix, prefix, excuse me, a prefix, but I'm kind of calling it a root word. If we're referring to fatty tissue, it would have the prefix or root word lipo. If it's bone, osteo, if it's fibrous tissue, um, the prefix fib or fibro often used, chondro for cartilage, hemangio for blood vessel, and then some different terms for the type of muscle if that is included. But that's usually only part of it you also have to have some sort of suffix or ending to that that usually indicates behavior or growth of that tumor. And this is where you get a distinction usually between a benign growth versus a malignant growth. And usually, if you just put the ending oma on something, it's usually just indicating some sort of benign growth of a tissue. And An example here would be a lipoma. A lipoma is a benign fatty tumor, and actually those are quite common, for example, in dogs. I know my dog has several of those types of tumors, but they're benign. If you put an ending such as carcinoma, sorry about that, carcinoma, or sarcoma, you are usually describing more of a malignant growth, often referring to either a epithelial origin or a connective tissue, like bone or fat. So for example, an osteosarcoma would be a malignant bone tumor. Um, And there are many other examples out there. And occasionally you will have some that don't quite follow some of the quote unquote rules about naming of tumors. Um, But even then, it's often possible they may just add the word malignant to it to indicate that. For an example there, would be malignant melanoma. Because melanoma by itself might just indicate its a benign growth of melanocytes, and that's not actually the case. It is a relatively malignant form of skin cancer, for example. But in order to really understand more about behavior, we have to compare the general characteristics of neoplasm versus those that are different between benign and malignant growth. Now, all neoplasm, regardless of whether it's benign or malignant, could be considered what's called a space occupying les- lesion. This means that it takes up space in your body or in your tissue. And just by virtue of taking up space, it may cause some symptoms. And I'll talk about some examples of that in a moment. They have autonomous growth. And this usually just implies that it's no longer following the instructions of your normal regulatory system in terms of growth of tissue and cells. Um, Because some cells are only meant to go through mitosis when needed, other ones are meant to die after a certain period of time. And so when those normal processes are altered, it is considered autonomous growth. One of the other potential issues, regardless of whether it's benign or malignant, is that it deprives healthy tissues of um, substances that they need for their metabolism and growth, like depriving healthy tissues of oxygen or of other nutrients like vitamins and minerals that may be necessary. Um, And one of the possible things that occurs with that is that you're going to see... um, Symptoms systemically like uh, fatigue, Um, just a general um, weight loss is even a possibility. And that's more predominant if it is a malignant tumor because those often grow faster. So let's distinguish um, how some of these things might be a little bit different in benign versus malignant tumors. So one of the possibilities um, that would distinguish them is how those cells look or how they develop. So benign tumors are usually well differentiated. So all of your cells start out as some sort of stem cell or um, very immature early version that can differentiate into the type of tissue or cell that it is meant to be, and that process pros- excuse me that process will eventually lead to a mature cell type that has a specific role as either a heart cell or a nerve cell or a blood cell. Um, so benign tumors usually maintain that type of differentiation so those cells will look mature however malignant cells often look less mature and they are more undifferentiated meaning that they look more like the very early versions of some of those tissues or stem cells they are more primitive so to speak and because of that many times they are non-functional So this means that even if that tumor um, originally was part of liver tissue at some point here as it begins to grow and the cells are more primitive and undifferentiated they now will no longer have that original function that they had as a liver cell now something else that's possible here is that there's a difference in the ability of those cells to move around so usually a benign tumor is not capable of metastasis whereas malignant tumors are capable of separating from the tumor and moving somewhere else in the body called metastasis. Okay, and part of this is because Locally here, they can expand if it's a benign tumor, but it can't completely break off because it's usually encapsulated in some sort of protective tissue. So they'll locally expand, but won't break off and and spread out. And that's mainly um, a big difference here because here we are not encapsulated and there's less adhesion. So this is a property of similar tissues to stick together and it's probably something you never even really thought about all that much. For example, why is it that heart cells stick together as heart cells? Why is it that muscle cells stick together as muscle cells? And this is because similar cells have adhesion properties and also what are called contact inhibition. Contact inhibition is one of the properties of similar cells. When they get close to another cell, they stop growing. They stop reproducing, stop going through mitosis because there's no more space for them to do so. Well, there's no contact inhibition with malignant cells. They may come in contact with a nearby cell but not stop reproducing or going through their mitosis. And so they will not only continue to go through reproduction, but also may break apart from that original tissue and find a new location to grow. The other possibility here is that because of that, these are gonna be more local effects from this tumor versus this will have both local and systemic effects because of that possibility of having spread to a distant site. So let's kind of look at what that would appear um, in a growth of either a benign or malignant tumor. So here, you noticed I said they're usually um, well differentiated cells. They look like relatively normal size and shape of cells. And they're only really going to slowly expand locally because they're surrounded by this capsule that keeps the cells together. As opposed to malignant tumors, they have a very irregular looking shape. The cells that are within them are irregular in shape and size. And they may grow so fast actually that certain portions of that tumor um, no longer are able to be supported by any blood vessels or nutrients that are in the area. So one of the possible things that could occur is that they spread to distant sites through blood vessels or spread through the local tissue And they may even have areas of necrosis if they are not able to grow new blood cells to promote the um, infusion of nutrients and oxygen for their own growth. So here's some of the issues with malignant tumors. So their growth and expansion locally may compress tissue because they tend to grow faster than benign tumors. They may compress nerves and begin to cause pain. And if they grow too fast, then part of the tumor may actually begin to die. And this causes inflammation. Because anytime cells die, they begin to release things into the system that your body reacts to. One of the ways that kind of makes a tumor evil is it tries to avoid this by secreting growth factors, and one of those growth factors is to promote the growth of new blood vessels, a process called angiogenesis. So this is an example of what blood vessels might look like before stimulation with um, chemicals that would increase the growth of blood vessels, and then after That has been, um, or that tissue has reacted to angiogenesis promoters, those local blood vessels now begin to branch out more, and you get more branching, more little capillaries being created, so that now there is a much larger blood supply in that area. Which, if this is a tumor surrounding this area, now you've got a much larger blood supply to support that fast growth. The other thing that could happen is that this tumor needs more space and so it begins to secrete enzymes to break down the tissue around it and create more space to grow. So this is part of tissue invasion. And one of the possible things, for example, that might be secreted is collagenase. right, we know that collagen is one of those basic building blocks or structural components or protein matrices that help support your tissue. And so by breaking down collagen, it's going to make that tissue um, less supported and more susceptible to spread of a local tumor. Now if you recall, I said that your malignant tumors have no adhesion or less adhesion. And so this will not only allow for local spread, but also for metastasis. And the way that that happens, and I'll talk about this more in a second, is through blood and lymphatic vessels, allowing for secondary tumors to develop in distant sites. Now, how does this all even get started? Well, the process of cells becoming cancerous is called carcinogenesis, so the start of cancer. And what we do know is that while there are certain cancers that have a pretty specific link to a cause, there are also many cases where even when that relationship or risk factor is present, that for some reason someone doesn't develop cancer. So as an example, We know that smoking is highly associated with lung cancer, but we also have seen many cases of people who have smoked quite a bit, multiple packs a day, and for some reason, they don't end up with cancer, while someone who's only been exposed to secondhand smoke from a spouse in their home, they end up with lung cancer. So we know that it's more than just individual risk factors that there are multiple different things that go into producing the existence of cancer in an individual. And that's because part of it has to do with the individual's own physiology, that things that include like the immune system and the ability of their um, white blood cells to recognize and get rid of any malignant cells that develop and also their own exercise, nutrition, and behavioral status as to what might allow someone to progress and someone else not to progress, even with the same number of risk factors. But something that we do know is closely related at a microscopic level is damaged DNA or damaged genes. We can pinpoint that some of these cancers are because those risk factors we know about, like smoking, for example, somehow damages cells at the DNA or gene level. And there's a couple different examples here that have been researched. We know that there are proto-oncogenes. These are normal genes that promote normal cell division. And if they are damaged, they may become an oncogene an oncogene is an abnormal proto-oncogene and here rather than promoting normal cell division it promotes abnormal cell division or uncontrolled cell division we also know that the human body has various tumor suppressor genes that do exactly what their names imply. These, instead of promoting cell division, they inhibit cell division in a normal state. And so when they are damaged, then cells divide unchecked. Normally they suppress growth, so if they're damaged, then the division will go unchecked. We also know that there are genes that are programmed to tell a cell when it should die. If you recall this term from the very first lecture, apoptosis is normal programmed cell death because red blood cells, for example, are meant to live for 120 days, but certain white blood cells, like neutrophils, may only live two to three days. And so certain cells have a finite lifetime. Heart cells, muscle cells, nerve cells are meant to last a lifetime. So we know, for example, that 50% of cancers have been found to have a defective P53 apoptosis gene. So this has been a big part of cancer research. It's quite possible that some of those tumors that develop occur because the genes that normally tell those cells that it's time to die never are triggered, and so the cell doesn't die in its normal lifetime, the time when it's supposed to go away. We also know that there is damage to DNA all the time as part of absolutely normal mitosis or normal exposures like UV light, sun exposure, or things from the environment like smoke, but We have our own way of repairing those in the system. You probably have mutations and abnormalities occurring at any time during your mitotic process in your various cells, but normally you have these genes that repair and take care of those abnormalities before they're able to be passed down to a daughter cell. So it's also possible here that you've got some sort of abnormality in a DNA repair gene that allows a mutation to propagate within a cell line. And so that would be where you get an abnormality in the grouping of cells that becomes a tumor. So these are all possible ways that either smoking or infection with HPV or exposure to toxins can all end up causing damage to DNA or genes that end up leading to pre-malignancy and eventually cancer. So pre-malignancy usually has a series of steps. Initially, you may have some atypical, sort of slightly abnormal-looking genes, or I'm sorry, cells, but not cancerous yet. Here, it's even possible for dysplastic cells to return to normal. So I'll give you an example that especially women will understand. When a pap smear is done um, during a normal gynecologic visit for a woman, one of the things that they're looking for in those cervical cells is cervical dysplasia. And that's because we know that abnormal or atypical cells may be an indication that those cells have been infected with a virus that can lead to cervical cancer like HPV. But it's possible, if the body is able to clear that, that those cells may revert to normal and it will not progress to cancer. If it does, it may be, if caught early, considered carcinoma in situ. It literally means cancer in place. So here, this is where the cancer has not yet penetrated the surrounding basement membrane or tissue. So it has not yet invaded or spread to the nearby area. It is literally small in its original location without having really become invasive yet. That is, if you're going to have cancer, the best type to have, because if you can remove that there, you hopefully then will have prevented any complications and may even have cured that cancer by removing it before it becomes too large. So let's kind of take a look at some of the things we do know. I mentioned that some of them are just genetic mutations. So here's an example listed here as an oncogene. A proto-oncogene that, because of a mutation in the DNA, became an oncogene. And I'll give you an example of that here, a breast cancer gene that we'll talk about in a little bit that predisposes people, increases their risk, women and women, for breast cancer and ovarian cancer. The sun or any other type of radiation can damage DNA. A virus like HPV and cervical cancer could change DNA. Exposure to toxins like from cigarettes that would lead to lung cancer. Hormones, we know this is related to breast cancer and even prostate cancer. Some of those tumors have hormone receptors on them. A lot of um, recent research is suggesting that food additives um, like dyes and preservatives may be something that can change DNA and cell structure or even lead to other types of conditions like autoimmunity or autism. And then industrial factors. These are just environmental exposures that may be occupational, for example. Exposure to chemicals in a factory, for, for example, that might change DNA. And what you have then is in the early stages, you have these um, changes to the DNA that eventually with repeated exposures and any additional risk factors, that these additional um, exposures are called promoters, that is what eventually leads to cancer. That initially you may have a mutant cell, but it's possible for things to be repaired or um, reverted back to normal if you can prevent the further propagation of that mutant cell. So it's really good to be aware of potential warning signs so that just in case something is occurring you might be able to stop it before it spreads or becomes more of an invasive tumor. Now, in general, some of the things that come into play, especially with malignant tumors, are things like weight loss. So the tumor is using energy, it's using um, nutrients, you're getting Some of that, that normally should be going to other tissues being consumed by the tumor. This can lead to fatigue. Sometimes you can have either bleeding or a nutritional deficiency that leads to anemia. And that ends up also contributing to the fatigue but there are some individual changes that you might notice in specific tissues that you should be aware of. And this was something developed by the American Cancer Society, an acronym of caution, where each letter describes a particular thing you might wanna keep in mind for a different type of tissue. So the C is looking for a change in bowel or bladder habits. So if you have um, a change in the frequency of stools or the shape of stools, that might, prompt you to talk to a physician, um, or issues with urinating. A sore that doesn't heal, so this would be more related to skin cancer. Unusual bleeding or discharge, and this is really in any location. This could be um, if it's uh, a sore on the skin that's bleeding. This could be discharge for females from the reproductive tract, for example. That is unusual or unexpected. Um, In terms of breast cancer for females, thickening or a lump. Um, And not just there, but really in anybody. So, for example, in men, testicular cancer can be exhibited by a lump in the testes. Ingestion or difficulty swallowing. That can be an indication of esophageal cancer, for example. An obvious change in a wort or mole indicative of skin cancer or potential potential skin cancer. And then for lung cancer, changes in um, cough or hoarseness. The um, properties of symptoms with cancer are really going to depend on the type of cancer, the location, the um, extent of cancer at the time of diagnosis, and in fact, I hesitate with some of these um, types of signs and symptoms because some of these aren't even present early on. Um, the initial changes that cause cancer go completely unnoticed for the most part until the tumor is large enough to cause issues. So um, one of the first things that could be local, or I'm sorry, one of the later things that could be local is pain. And this is because usually the tumor has to be large enough to begin to either compress tissue or to irritate nerves. That is not one of the first things that individuals might notice. And also, when the um, tumor is large enough to either obstruct, in this case, blood vessels, it could obstruct some sort of exit from the body, like bladder or bowel. It's also possible, for example, in lungs, that you could have difficulty with breathing because of the tumor obstructing a bronchial space or alveoli. And so these are gonna be things that you might notice later on. Some of those sort of sneaky things um, that can be overlooked, unfortunately, are typically more systemic. Things like weight loss or cachexia. Cachexia is just a technical term for sort of a wasting that involves a a a loss of a lot of muscle or protein Um, And here there are multiple reasons this could happen. This could just be because of a loss of appetite or anorexia, that's the technical term, not the same as anorexia nervosa, which is um, an eating disorder, but just a loss of appetite. It could be that pain or stress or anxiety are changing the eating habits of somebody, or what's called nutrient trapping, which is what the tumor does when it's using up some of those Um, normal nutritional um, objects that the body would be needing for its own maintenance of tissue. Anemia is a possibility that either could be because of a decrease of food intake necessary for producing new red blood cells or bone marrow suppression. This could be because of um, cancer growth itself or treatment for cancer or even the possibility that the tumor has caused chronic bleeding that cannot be replaced quickly enough before the person becomes anemic. Now, related to bone marrow suppression, remember that not only are red blood cells made in the bone marrow, but so are white blood cells and platelets. So if platelet counts become low because of bone marrow suppression, you may also have an increase in bleeding because of that. You could have low white blood cell counts if the bone marrow is suppressed to the point where you're not getting those cells put out either. The big issue with this is either, because of any of these previous things related to nutrition or bone marrow suppression, you could have a decrease in host resistance. In other words, immunity, and this means that the individual not only will have a decreased ability to ward off infections, but that also lessens the body's ability to take care of any abnormal cells because you do have that capability of removing abnormal cancerous cells in the very early stages. Now something that is kind of frustrating from a diagnostic standpoint is that some tumors develop the ability to produce hormones. And this is called, and this is something big you should know, called paraneoplastic syndrome. So this is the production of hormones or other substances normally made somewhere else. And what happens is the release of these other things into the system kind of masks the cancer. And one of the primary examples of this, for example, is some lung tumors may begin to secrete cortisol. Now, if you recall from anatomy and physiology, cortisol is made in the adrenal glands, which are right on top of your kidneys. And when you have an elevated amount of cortisol in your system, it is called Cushing's disease. And so when you have a lung tumor that's secreting cortisol, it's going to make the patient look as though they have Cushing's, when in reality it's a lung tumor. And thankfully, because that is one of the common things that can happen in lung tumors, sometimes without any other indications, if someone is exhibiting Cushing's-like symptoms, they may at least do a screening or imaging to look for a lung tumor to make sure that's not the culprit as opposed to an adrenal um, issue producing Cushing's. So that's something to keep in mind. It's kind of one of those things that it's not native to the tissue, um, but the tumor has developed the ability to secrete those things um, that will affect the systemic symptoms of the individual. So one of the biggest things is if something comes up that's either local or systemic symptoms is to do some diagnostics. But even without something that seems abnormal, it's really important for some of these um, types of cancer to do regular screenings and self-examinations on your own or in the case of something that needs to be done in a doctor's office, by making regular appointments for that because, as I mentioned before, if you can catch some of these cancers very early, in the in-situ stage, for example, you may be able to cure it Um, before it has a chance to spread or invade the local tissue. And it's a much better prognosis. So there are some that are really common we're all familiar with. For women, breast self-exams, mammograms, and pap smears are commonly recommended. For men, prostate exams, usually in later life. Earlier in life, testicular self-exams are recommended. In fact, for your age group, testicular cancer is one of the most common. um, And so testicular um, self-exams should be done much earlier in life than prostate exams. Um, Later in life, for all ages, things like colonoscopies. Um, Or something to go with that is fecal occult blood tests, which will look for bleeding, one of the first signs that there might be a colon tumor. Um, At any age, skin checks or mole checks are important to look for changes that might indicate skin cancer. And then potentially later in life, blood tests that might indicate things, and we'll put this one here for men, things like a PSA. And some of the recommendations for doing these change from time to time. So that would be something just to be aware of as you get older or have patients or even family members considering this, um, that some of those um, recommendations may change from time to time. If you're looking for a diagnosis, there are multiple things that can be used along with clinical picture to try to confirm that cancer is present because again we need to distinguish that from a benign growth. Now there are some things that can help just to take a look at um, actually direct diagnosis. If you're looking for a blood cancer, leukemia can be diagnosed directly by a blood test that often is confirmed with a bone marrow um, sample. But the other possibility here is that blood tests might be used to look for genetic markers that might indicate a risk or the presence of one of those abnormal genes. And an example of this that I mentioned before is the BRCA or BRAC testing, BRCA1 and BRCA2 testing, because this usually indicates that an individual with that abnormality has a much higher risk of breast and ovarian cancer. Um, So just to give you a little bit of background of this, um, of the women who have this gene defect, they have an 85, so if this is present, they have an 85% lifetime risk of developing breast cancer. So that risk is pretty high, and having this particular a gene abnormality actually leads individuals to do what's considered like a prophylactic, um, in other words, ahead of time treatment to avoid breast cancer that might be as sweeping as a double mastectomy before cancer is even found. And there have been some famous people who have done this and brought attention to this um, as a way to prevent cancer um, based on family history and a blood test. Now, there are some other ones that might come into play depending on the type of cancer, and you don't need to know this, but I I am gonna list a few of them here just in case you may have heard of them before, and these are called tumor markers that we know are present in certain types of cancer. For example, PSA, you may have heard of before, prostate-specific antigen. This is one that we know is elevated in prostate cancer. The problem is it's also elevated in things like prostatitis, which is an infection of the prostate, but not cancer. So it's not a specific marker for prostate cancer, but when it's elevated, we need to rule out prostate cancer as a potential reason for that. There are some other ones, like what's called carcinoembryonic antigen, or CEA, that is found in colon cancer. There's one called um, AFP, alpha-fetoprotein, which is found in hepatic or liver cancer. There's one that's found in ovarian cancer sometimes called CA-125. So these would all be found with a blood test. Um, And actually, another one here um, that is sort of interesting, HCG, human chorionic gonadotropin, is a hormone that's normally um, indicative of pregnancy. That's one of the hormones that is used to measure that pregnancy is present in a female. But when it's present in a male, it's actually indicative of testicular cancer. Um, so these are all possible things that you might be able to find just with a basic blood test. But in some cases, imaging is really quite helpful in determining or suspecting that a cancer is present in a I'll give you that primary example I mentioned earlier. That's in lung cancer. So you might do an x-ray. In um, brain cancer, for example, you might do um, an MRI. Um, CAT scans, ultrasounds, all of those other things are possibilities as well with imaging that might really be helpful depending on the type of tissue and what you're looking for. Put a big star by this one, though. Really the only definitive way that you can be sure that a growth is malignant versus cancerous is by doing direct examination, microscopically, of a sample from that tumor. Now there are a couple different ways you could obtain that sample, you could do what's called a fine needle aspirate, or you could do a biopsy, but in any of those cases, what you are doing is either looking directly at tissue, studying the tissue, that's what histology is, or studying the cells, that's what cytology is. This is the really definitive way of determining that diagnosis, because as I said, many of these, we can't necessarily know if they're elevated because of some other reason or if it's cancer, or if the tumor that we see on that X-ray of the lung is benign versus malignant. So this is one of the big things you have to consider with um, doing diagnostics on benign versus malignant, malignant tumors. Once that diagnosis has been made, the big question that everybody wants to know is how long do I have, or what does this mean? What's the prognosis, you know, what can I expect? And in order to understand that, usually both grading and staging of the tumor or cancer is done. Now these are a little bit different. Grading of that tumor is usually done by a pathologist using the microscope or that direct examination. And this is when they're actually going to look at those cells and determine the degree of anaplasia. Remember, that's the term that discusses the degree of differentiation Differentiation of the cells. And that was one of those things that partly determined that it was malignant. Remember the ones that aren't well differentiated, that are very immature and usually non-functional, were the ones that were malignant, compared to benign cells, which are usually more differentiated, more mature-looking, relatively normal-looking under the microscope. So here, um, there are a bunch of different terms that might be used um, that vary based on the type of cancer as to the terminology that might be used. But in general, a lower grade of cancer is the least aggressive in comparison, versus a higher grade of those cells is usually more aggressive and poorly differentiated. Usually that means they're highly atypical under the microscope. They don't, in fact, in some cases you might not even be able to tell what the original tissue of origin is. It might not, it may have come from the liver, but it doesn't look like liver cells at all anymore. In fact, we can't quite tell what type of cell it originally was. But the best thing to try to tell for a a patient or a family as to what's going on is to do staging, and that's because staging also involves the clinical picture. And usually that involves some sort of acronym that helps them to determine um, the size of the tumor and the extent of its spread. So this is um, one potential way that it could be staged, using what's called the TNM staging. That stands for tumor, lymph nodes, and metastasis. So here, the various numbers, and this is an example for breast cancer, but there are various ways that it might be staged depending on the cancer. T1, for example, is when that tumor is less than or equal to 2 centimeters, versus T2 is when that tumor is between 2 and 5 centimeters. T3 might be if that tumor is greater than 5 centimeters. And T4 would be if the tumor is large enough to have invaded the chest wall or the skin. If there is no nodal involvement, it's N0. And here would be, as you go on with these numbers, the involvement of various nearby lymph nodes then M0 would be no metastasis versus M1 would be that there is metastasis. And as I said, there are various ways to do staging depending on the type of cancer, and here's an example for esophageal cancer. You can see here the different types um, of T numbers that are used to indicate the esophageal tumor and its size, whether or not lymph nodes are included the number of lymph nodes that are included, and then whether or not it's metastasized is not really shown on this image, but that's sort of obvious if you're finding it at a distant location outside of the lymph nodes. So how does it spread? How does it move? Well, the first possibility is just in general that it spreads locally, and that's called invasion. Here, it just is gonna move into the nearby tissue. And part of how it does that is it releases some of those enzymes, things that are going to break down the nearby tissue, like collagenase. And the example that's shown here is a cervical cancer that just begins to spread and may get into the tissue eventually, potentially getting into tissue that is nearby, but outside of the cervix, like um, behind the cervix, it might begin to colonize the colon. In front of the uterus, it might begin to colonize the bladder as opposed to metastasis, that term that we've all heard of before, that is a pretty scary term. So this is movement of cells to a distant site. And the way that this happens is using blood and lymphatic vessels. But here, one of the issues is that once you have metastasis, you need to try to determine the difference between A primary versus a secondary tumor. So let me give you an example of this just to avoid some confusion. Let's say that initially someone had breast cancer. And that breast cancer metastasized. So let's say that it metastasized um, through a lymph node and the lymphatic system to the lungs, which are nearby, obviously. Here, if you end up with a tumor in the lung, it's not, not... now considered lung cancer. It is a metastatic breast cancer tumor. That would be secondary. So it is still the original type of tissue, it's just in a new location. It doesn't mean that the person now has lung cancer. Or, for example, if some of that tissue moved to the liver or to the brain, they don't now also have brain cancer and liver cancer, it's still just metastatic breast cancer in a new site. Now the other possibility here is that you have spread of tumor cells within a body cavity. So you have to think back to your anatomy and physiology. So the example that's shown here is in the abdominal cavity or the peritoneal cavity. And here you have to kind of remember that there are certain organs that are just in that cavity protected from and separated from, in this case, the pleural cavity where your lungs and heart are. And so here, if you have a ovarian tumor that is able to have cells break off and float around in the peritoneal tissue, or the peritoneal fluid, I mean, then you could have it depositing on the outside of organs in various places in this cavity that then could begin to grow. So this is something where it's the fluid itself that enhances the movement of the abnormal cells throughout the tissues. Now this is also going to come into play with the type of treatment. Now, The approach to treatment sometimes depends on the stage in which it is diagnosed, the location, how advanced that type of tumor is, and this is where staging comes into play, So, we usually describe it as curative versus palliative treatment. Now, there is kind of a gray line here as well. Traditionally, curative treatment is anything that is meant to cure the cancer, whereas palliative care is a part of making somebody comfortable. Now, a lot of people think that this only happens at the end of life, however, If you talk to anyone in the nursing department, they will tell you that palliative care should occur throughout curative care as well. It should always be part of the effort to make someone comfortable during any type of treatment. And this is partly just treating symptoms in order to improve um, quality of life. However, if the cancer is advanced, Sometimes, palliative treatment becomes the only type of treatment that is given as someone is near death. And so this is end-of-life care sometimes exclusively given as palliative care when curative care has ceased. But ideally, you should have some overlap between the two, especially in the early stages. So I just want to emphasize that. It's sometimes a misunderstood concept. There are three main types of treatments that I'm going to go over. Surgery, radiation, and the use of drugs, which is often referred to as either chemotherapy or immunotherapy or both. So let's start with surgery. Surgery, as it sort of implies, is removal of tissue, going in and actually trying to take out that tumor. Now it's not just the tumor that you're gonna be removing, it's also possible that in order to make sure that there is no left behind malignant cell that could continue to grow, you need to have what are called clean edges. You need to remove additional tissue nearby as well, just to make sure that you're leaving nothing behind. You may even also have removal of lymph nodes nearby in order to make sure that there is nothing left behind. Um, Occasionally, either before the surgery or right after the surgery, they may do radiation in order to make sure that there are no other cells um, that may have been um, left behind that are microscopic that you wouldn't have been able to detect during that surgery. Now, in some cases, depending on the type of tumor, if the tumor is very small, for example, in the lungs or the liver, it's possible that as an alternative to surgery, that you could do something called radiofrequency ablation. This is less invasive. It saves um, some of the tissue. In fact, you may not have to remove the whole lobe, the whole lobe of the lung or the liver, if that was the place. But as I said, this is really only for very small tumors. And here, what they're going to do then is go in and um, with the help of imaging, insert a needle and electrodes and use um, like a heat generated by radio waves to destroy those cells that are there. And then the body kind of takes care of the cleanup process. So that's a possibility depending on what the issue is because there are some disadvantages with surgery. In, In some people, there are just Risks in general of surgery complications depending on the age and the health of the person they might not um, do well with the anesthesia for example Um, there's this loss of good tissue because you have to get clean edges there's also cosmetic issues depending on what type of cancer it is So think about a woman who has a mastectomy. Um, Then going forward, there are often some psychological ramifications of that in terms of gender identity and just um, depression because of these feelings that they no longer resemble the female form. And so some of those might require some additional um, therapy or um, reconstructive surgery in order to help return that individual to a positive quality of life. Now, as I said, usually either before or after surgery, or even as a type, and when it is done before or after surgery, it is called adjuvant therapy, um, but it can also be used by itself, is the process of radiation. And this is kind of important. It can be by itself curative um, for using with cells of a very high turnover. So this is some of your more malignant tumors. And there are three different types within radiation as a form of treatment. There is external radiation, where um, you go in and you get a focused beam of radiation, usually with the help of imaging, to make sure that you're getting um, to that exact location of a tumor. And here, the nice thing is, is you go in usually daily, for six weeks or so, but there's no radiation remaining when you leave. As opposed to these next two, which are both, which are both types of internal radiation, um, one of them is called Reiki therapy. Reiki therapy is the insertion of radioactive seeds. So they kind of encase the radiation in these little objects that they place at the, um, the site of the tumor. It's done for prostate cancer sometimes, and they've been exploring it for breast cancer also. Um, but what happens here is then you are walking around with a radioactive isotope inside your body until it slowly decays by its half-life. And so you do have to be careful of exposures to people that are around you who might be more susceptible like children. Um, and then there's also a radioactive solution. And this would be for a body cavity. So that previous example that I gave you of how cancer can spread within the peritoneal cavity, for example, um, you might want to flush that cavity with a radioactive solution in order to make sure you don't have any extra cells that are spreading within that body fluid. But don't confuse seeding um, as a treatment by brachytherapy with seeding of tumor cells as a method of spreading. There are different concepts. What are the adverse effects of radiation? Well, part of this depends on the location, and how it is done. There might be relatively few adverse effects with brachytherapy for prostate cancer. Um, but if it's a larger radioactive field, and it is an external radiation, for example, you might see, let's say in a woman who ha- is having radiation therapy for breast cancer, that the skin around the area gets almost like a sunburn, that there is hair loss on the skin or tissue near that um, the field of treatment. Um, there may be nausea, vomiting, or other GI upset as a result of the radiation exposure. You could have scarring, by the way, also, of the skin in the area, fatigue. There could even be bone marrow suppression as a result of the radiation exposure, and if it's abdominal radiation, maybe for example um, for testicular cancer, you could cause sterility in someone. So if this is a young man um, with testicular cancer, most likely they will not be able to have children as a result of the radia- radiation treatment for testicular cancer. Now a really big category of treatment that you probably all heard of is chemotherapy also called anti-neoplastic drugs. Now, these are more systemic and as a result, they have much more significant adverse effects. Now, they also can be used before or after surgery as an adjuvant therapy because much like radiation, by using these before and after surgery, you could either reduce the tumor size before surgery or use it as a method to get rid of any remaining microscopic cells you could have left behind after that surgery. But regardless of how it is used, um, typically if it is used as a primary treatment, for example with leukemia, it is administered as some sort of intravenous combination of various types, and there are four different types that I'll talk about and they have to be given in cycles of treatment, and that is because they are usually best used in tumors that have what's called a high growth fraction. So in this example here, if you've got 10 cells, the blue ones are not dividing, and the orange ones here are dividing. If you looked at that particular grouping, it would have what's called a 20% growth factor because two of 10 cells are dividing at any one time. In a tumor, you might have, rather than two out of 10 cells growing at any one time, here there are eight of 10 cells dividing at any one time. This is an 80% growth factor. So these tumors that have a higher growth factor are actually going to be most affected by chemotherapy so let me go through the different types one of these types is called an alkylating agent now alkylating agents bind to dna and prevent replication so as you can imagine this is going to be happening to both your cells that have a high growth fraction like mucous membrane cells, skin cells, but also happen to those tumor cells that are growing rapidly. An example of this is called bisulfan, but you don't need to know this as an example. I'm just giving it to you in case you've heard of it before. There are also some anti-meoplastic antibiotics. Now, don't let this confuse you. These are not drugs given because they have an infection. They don't really have anti-infective properties. Here, they're being used because they interfere with DNA and RNA synthesis. And an example of this is a drug called doxorubicin. Antimetabolites, as their name implies, are given to interfere with the metabolic functions of a cell, such as inactivating enzymes. And this one you may have heard of, it's actually used, for example, in some autoimmune diseases, methotrexate. Oops, sorry about that. We're quite, not quite done writing on this one. And then a group of drugs that does exactly what it says, antimitotics. So antimitotics. Their whole function is to interfere or stop, sorry, my pen is getting finicky, interfere or stop mitosis, oh my goodness, I am sorry, something's going on with my pen, I will keep going as best I can. So here, one of the examples you may have heard of before, or you may see in the next slide, is called vinblasting. Now, because these drugs tend to attack the replication of a cell in different places in their cell cycle, they're often, as I said, given in some sort of cocktail or combination in order to get at as many of these growing cells as possible in case they are in different um, stages of replication. However, this creates a whole lot of issues. Um, there's often hair loss because that's one of your like rapidly growing or replacing cells. You often have anorexia. And part of this anorexia or loss of um, appetite happens because the mucosa is damaged. You get a lot of Mouth sores, um, irritation of the oral mucosa it makes it hard or painful to eat and drink. Um, you often will get GI symptoms like nausea, vomiting, um, diarrhea, bone marrow suppression as I mentioned before. And some of these we can um, address with other drugs, and I'll talk about those in a second, but usually this can be um, a tough time shortly after it's been administered to adjust to some of these changes. So here's an example. Here's vinblastine being used, doxorubicin, bleomycin, and this, um, oh, and decarbazine. So this is an example of a way that Hodgkin's disease is treated called ABVD. These are four different drugs that each block the replication of a cell in different parts of their um, cell cycle so that you are hopefully getting um, the most cells being affected that are rapidly dividing at one particular time. And so by doing multiple phases of this, you're going to get at the most cancer cells. Now, other drugs are often used depending on the type of cancer or the individual situation. For example, sometimes steroids are given to help as an anti-inflammatory. It's also possible that you are giving a hormone because that particular tumor responds to it. So as an example, giving estrogen to somebody with prostate cancer may actually slow the growth of that tumor. There are some tumors that grow better in the presence of hormone, and so you may want to give an anti-hormone. Example of that is tamoxifen. This is an anti-estrogen that is used to treat breast cancer that has hormonal receptors on the surface of its tumor. And so by blocking the estrogen effect on that tumor, you can slow its growth. Now, one really big area of research more recently is called immunotherapy also sometimes called biologic response modifiers. And that term is used for treatments even in other types of diseases like autoimmune disease, so this will come back again. But immunotherapy is a term that's sometimes used more specifically for cancer because this helps to boost the normal immune response to tumors. And there are a couple ways that this could happen. Sometimes they give interferon, although this sometimes isn't as effective as desired. If you recall, that's a substance that can make nearby cells more resistant to cancer or viral infection. Sometimes they may even use a vaccine. For example, there's a TB vaccine called BCG that is sometimes given for treating bladder cancer because it brings um, different types of white blood cells to that area so that you get a boosted immune response. There's also another drug that's sometimes used for breast cancer called Herceptin, that's the trade name, that will increase the immune response to cancers. And I have actually seen um, commercials more recently for other immunotherapy drugs that are recently introduced to the market, so you may see these more predominant in the future as a way to help treat cancer, mainly because the ideal is that they would have fewer side effects because they're using your body's own defense mechanisms to fight the disease. Something else that can um, help is to reduce the blood supply to that particular tumor that has developed its own blood supply through angiogenesis. So angiogenesis inhibitors such as Avastin, this is the trade name for that drug, may be used, although you have to balance this with the possibility that reducing the blood supply means that things like chemotherapy won't be able to get to that area either. So that's kind of a balancing act. Then here's a really great list of supportive drugs that are quite often used for improving quality of life or to reduce complications like infection. So if you recall me mentioning that with um, chemotherapy, it's quite possible that somebody may end up having um, nausea and vomiting. And this has become a really big part of helping with chemotherapy is getting that right balance of antiemetics. This can really help, and this is an example of a drug, Zofran, that can help reduce those... Really annoying um, nausea and vomiting symptoms after chemotherapy that make it so that somebody is so sick that they can't really function. Um, and so, balancing that can really help someone have um, a, a more f- higher level of function after chemotherapy treatment. In addition to that, analgesics may help with any pain that's occurring as a result of either the disease itself or the treatment. And the Um, potential risk for anemia um, and infection because of low white blood cell counts is something that they really want to try to avoid. In fact, sometimes chemotherapy, a round of chemotherapy may have to be delayed if the blood counts are too low. So they do monitor these um, a lot. So they could go with anything that stimulates the growth of red blood cells by themselves. Um, Something like Procrit, which is a trade name for a drug, Um, that's meant to increase red blood cells, or drugs that are meant to increase white blood cells, like granulocyte colony stimulating factor. And an example of this is called um, Neulasta, and I'm sure you've probably even seen commercials for this. That's a trade name of a recently um, developed drug. And what's kind of cool about this one is if you remember me talking about the infection lecture, how some bacteria have the ability to help us make things by introducing DNA through their plasmid um, for them to create human analogs of certain things. So Nulasta is actually a recombinant um, DNA, human recombinant DNA um, product made by E. coli bacteria to create um, granulocyte stimulating factor for us to use. Um, And this is a really neat way that we've harnessed that ability of bacteria to make something with a plasmid for us to use. Um, So something else um, that I did want to mention here is if infection is suspected or you want to try to avoid infection if there's going to be a potential exposure, Um, you may have to either give prophylactic antibiotics or after diagnosis. Um, And something that may happen here is um, recurrent fungal infection or um, respiratory infections that are bacteria or um, fungal in nature may require antibiotics in order to make sure that because if they have a low white blood cell count that they're not going to um, be affected and have a complication from a systemic infection, that is going to add to their risks from the original cancer treatment. Um, The last thing to talk about here is um, what you might have a part in, and that's in recovery of a cancer patient, rehabilitation and physical activity after recovering from cancer. And this is really gonna require you to consult with an oncologist because it all depends on the type of cancer, the type of treatment, the um, health state of that individual before they even were diagnosed because their level of activity prior to being diagnosed is going to partly have an indication of their ability to recover quickly after treatment. So anybody, regardless of how well in what kind of shape they were prior to having cancer is going to have deconditioning from inactivity, from weight loss, from anemia, from all these things that would have made them too tired to do any activity um, with their cancer treatment. It's also possible that the body um, with chemo or with the growth of the tumor itself may have used muscle in order to provide nutrition And then any side effects of treatment, like from chemo. Um, If bone marrow suppression was present, then you may have anemia. That will also contribute to the fatigue, deconditioning, and ability to participate for very long periods of time. Um, So this is all something that you would hopefully be working with an oncologist to make sure that your um, prescription is adequate and appropriate for the individual situation of an individual. So if you have any questions about cancer, this is one of those areas that we are learning about more and more all the time. This may be something you'll have to keep up with if you do go into rehabilitation with cancer patients, learning more about the types of drugs and their effects um, and any new treatment or diagnostic types of criteria for different cancers. So um, it's always good to stay up with new information, but if you have any questions, please let me know. Thank you.